I, um, I remember that there are sort of locked in, in the sort of the cultural memory, Christian or not actually, some famous sermons. In high school, we had to read Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God by Jonathan Edwards, the Puritan preacher. And um, regardless of what you think of his, of the theology of that, it's famous. Lots of people know about it. 50s and, and 60s, uh, you must be saved and the buses will wait. Billy Graham. And then when I was early in college, a really famous sermon began to circulate. It seemed like everybody I knew had heard it. It's Friday, but Sunday's coming. Tony Campolo made that popular. He wasn't actually the, the first. I, he didn't necessarily come up with that. He, he, I think, admits, you know, he borrowed it from, a, from another pastor. But regardless, famous sermons. I'm going to riff a little bit on the, it's Friday, but Sunday's coming, because I titled our conversation today, it's Sunday, but Friday's coming. This is Palm Sunday, the Sunday before the crucifixion and resurrection. Let me read out of Matthew that, that story. It's Matthew 21, and I'll read 1 through 11. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what the, was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see, your king comes to you, gentle, and riding on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went ahead and did as Jesus had instructed them. And they brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that follow shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. And when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? And the crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. You, I can feel, maybe you can too, in this narrative, the excitement, the, the positivity. Um, it, it sort of dawns on me that perhaps those folks experiencing that road experience, that welcoming of the king, were acting in a pretty risky way. That was subversive. To call someone king or savior, the cultural context of a savior would be 
sort of military, not spiritual the way we think of it. Um, they were, for lack of a better word, they were so convinced that finally, finally, things were going to be different. It's Sunday. But Friday's coming. In these biographies that, of Jesus, what we call the Gospels, about 20, 25% of the entire story of life of Jesus and mostly of his ministry, about 20 to 25% is dedicated just to about this last couple of weeks, and most of that is centered in this week, especially in the book of John. And, and this happens throughout the entire Bible. There are stories and experiences that contain over and over the gospel, the good news. And this story is the gospel. The gospel is not just Friday and Sunday. It is Sunday and Friday and Sunday. It is that whole human experience of Hosanna, of him wanting to rescue us, and he does. I, I think the reason I, I, I like it is so often in the Bible, it captures and says for us out loud what is our real experience, and it is our real experience that we have hopes and experiences in God and what God has done that raise our expectations of what God can do. Disappointment is always relative to the expectation. I was hoping I would have a, a good dinner at the restaurant and it was not so hot. I'm disappointed, but it's not that big a deal. But the expectations our fellow brothers and sisters, humans, were experiencing on this Sunday is at the peak of expectation. You'll get the story, I'm sure, about then the disappointment. The spiritual rhythm of experiencing God's unbelievable rescue and then experiences where that doesn't happen. I remember in my own life, uh, the two summers I worked in high school as a camp counselor at a Christian camp, just right outside of Denver here. And all summer, I'm just with... Uh, other Christians and we're young people and we're going to change the world and we talk about Jesus and the Bible every day and we see kids' lives change. And all of us, we, we are going home at the end of that summer, we're going back to school and we're going to rock the world. And a couple months later, we're smoking and drinking, I don't know, you know, it's, there is that enthusiasm, we, you know, you, we call it here, in, at least in America, the, the, the spiritual high which assumes, I guess, or should, uh, perhaps a spiritual valley. The gospel, this thing that we call good news or a kind of a, a, a shorthand for this entire idea of eternal life, 
which is not just something that happens when you die, but it's, a, it's an entire experience that Jesus came. It's, it's said in different ways. The kingdom is here. This gospel is always absurd when you try to make it work within the known cultural context and values. It won't, it, it can't make sense. It's just, it's too weird. It's, it, maybe this is too strong. I think it's absurd. And this is the story that sort of tells that. In verse 4, your king, your king. I mean, those are, wow. Again, pinnacle of all that could be in terms of human hierarchy. Your king comes in gentleness and on a donkey. So here's, here's this political context, the way in which people would have heard and anticipated these experiences. You've, you've heard of Pax Romano, or I can't, I don't know if I'm saying that right, but it's, it's the idea of the peace of Rome. And so at this moment in, in time, the, the Roman Empire was quickly expanding. It was, you know, by far, once again, one of these dominant and seemingly eternally dominant political and military kinds of um, powers. And so what they said was, as they conquered, that it would be Roman peace would be established. Now, we know for sure the way we say that. It's, it's in our culture, it is peace through strength. That has been a popular military philosophy, not only in our country, but I guess throughout history, that the belief that you have to have peace is through power. Whether that's a national system, a political system, or even an economic system, that peace, lack of conflict, lack of having to be afraid, will come through power. Here's a way we might say that if we were sort of observing the system. If we will adopt an evil system, a, an unjust system, we can be safe from economics, economic ruin. We can be safe from uh, political invasion or, you know, military invasion and political overthrow. So again, in their context and what they are sort of used to, a leader would arrive. A leader would, would come through Main Street. It would be their ticker tape parade. And that leader would be on a really big horse. He would be on this gilded steed, you know, adorned, powerful, head high, you know, waving to the crowd. It was a symbol of conquering. It was a symbol of, see, you can have peace. You can feel safe. Look how you can trust me. There is something, even today, again, about transportation and power. So just think, 
The president arrives, the, the parade, you know, the sirens and the lights, and, and there he is in his 1988 Oldsmobile Cutlass. It's absurd. Of course he's going to ride in a huge limousine. My wife works in corporate travel. Well, she used to work in corporate travel, to be more precise. But in, in corporate travel, part of what happens is they manage the, the hierarchy. In other words, the person at the top, lots of presidents and CEOs, have a very strict sort of um, protocol for them. And at the top is at the airport, they're always picked up in black car service. They always fly first class. And then as you go down, you know, the guy at the bottom, he goes to rent a lemon and he's back almost in luggage. The higher you are, the one with the most power has the most prestigious and comfortable. And it demonstrates to the public, it demonstrates to their clients confidence in the power of leadership. The gospel is absurd. And so, Jesus is coming with that backdrop, and here he shows up, the king. Just a quick side. Do not confuse gentleness with a false modesty. Jesus, Jesus never downplays who he is. He is God. The, the story that follows this story in Matthew is when Jesus goes into the, into the, the, the temple. Remember, and he clears it out. And the most profound thing is when he sort of requotes that this is a house of prayer. This is, my, you know, this is God's house of prayer. He says, this is my house of prayer. Jesus never shied away from saying he is God. But as God, he came to serve. I'm sorry. So back to the comparison. So you know what's coming. Here comes Jesus on a donkey. Now, try with me, let's try to imagine a worse example of powerful leadership in terms of transportation. Like, I can't, I can't imagine a, a almost silly demonstration of a king. Here comes a king on a donkey. And even if you were going into battle, is, is there a worse animal you could be on to go into battle than a donkey? Like, I think that is just certain annihilation. And so we, we, know, we know the hopes that have begun feel like they were on the verge of being fulfilled. And here comes their conqueror on a donkey. Now, they are getting everything they ever wanted. They just don't know it. Their, their hopes are going to be far exceeded than what they had limited it to, which was just the oppression of Rome. But they couldn't see that. 
because the context of how they lived, there was no, there was no way to make this work. Um, Peter, Peter mentioned him that, I think it was in John, when this story is preceded by the story of Lazarus. Is that right? It was John. It's John. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. John. And, and I was thinking of that too. So, I don't know if you know the story. I'll give you the quick summary. Lazarus dies. Jesus makes him alive. Okay? Just Imagine. And so these people who are sort of in this somewhat of a suburb of Jerusalem, that's why, at least we hear in John, they're motivated to come to this big ticker tape parade because if you can raise somebody from the dead, Rome should be no problem for you. And so Lazarus, I assume, I believe, that he became sick and there was like, I don't think it was like a sudden death or an uh, an accident. I think he became diseased and died. That's my theory. And so what if we interviewed Lazarus just say three or four years later? How are you feeling, Lazarus? <coughs> Got a little cough. <coughs> a little cough. And um, weird. I can't smell or taste anything. Bizarre. And I get this little fever. I feel chilled. And I noticed last night I was... Whew, I was having a little bit of trouble breathing. Hey, don't worry about me. I've been raised from the dead. Hey, hey, I'm positive Jesus is going to fix this. This ain't nothing to him. We, we would rather be liberated from Rome it feels like, than liberated from what the Bible calls death. Death is physical, but it's existential. It's, it's felt, it's intuited. We may not be able to link the pieces, but it has to do with having to, to feel the weight of my own bad choices, what the Bible would call sin. Those moments when, over and over, I'm confident in my ability and incredibly suspicious of God's. So I take it on myself. I take the responsibility to be alive. And Jesus wants to rescue me from that. We want eternal safety more than we want eternal life. We want the, the gift of power far more than we want the gift of gentleness. Isn't it interesting that the system which has been since the beginning of time and up until this very moment the system that believes without question that power can make you safe. That there is 
not one example of this long-term um, validation of that philosophy. But throughout the beginning of our story and accelerated in the life of Jesus, is the, you can't stop the kingdom. The kingdom continues to roll and our king comes in gentleness and on a donkey. I, I, I want to say that, kind of a repeat of what I was saying at the beginning, that one of the, I, I think, attractions of the scripture is how brutally honest it is about the human experience. We hear about this king who came in gentleness on a donkey, and he says to us, there's nothing you can experience that I haven't experienced. What king would want to do that? What king would want to experience what at the very lowest in his kingdom would go through? But that's what our king longs to do so he can say to all of us, I know what life is like. And I'm sympathetic. He's sympathetic. He is sympathetic. He, he's sympathetic to the exuberance of Sunday, but he knows the longer story. He weeps at what he knows will be their disappointment. He weeps because they don't know what peace is. They think peace is the absence of conflict. And he knows that peace comes through being reconciled to God through the death that he's going to give. Oh, what an absurd gospel. All right. I don't want to just skip by sort of the reality of the horror that so many people are experiencing and the fear that a lot of us might be tempted with in this coronavirus. And I don't want to sound Pollyannish in any way, and I don't want, I'm not trying to wipe away real human experiences. I don't think feeling afraid is the same as acting afraid. I, I don't, I can't imagine God shaming me for a sort of a, an emotional response. He made this body of mine. But he's asking me to trust him with what I'm going to do with that feeling, that fear. Am I going to succumb and live to it? and steal toilet paper? Or am I going to trust? You see, I can feel something and still be trusting. I, I, so, I, I think, and please be graceful to me, that I think there are going to be some amazing positive things come out of this. I, I really do believe that. Now, those of you that are suffering and are in the midst of grief, um, I'm not, I'm not trying to say your sacrifice is worth it for me. I think we're going to rethink church on a very global way. Jesus said a very interesting thing. He said, you're going to do greater works than I did. You think, gee, I'm going to do more than Jesus did? And what I think he meant was that because I'm going to trust you with this gospel of gentleness, that this, that this overcoming is through humility 
and subversive underneathness? Because I'm gonna entrust all of you, you can spread it. You can spread it like Peter prayed, it, it can go viral. And I, I, I think as we, we begin to not only, there's, you know, there's nothing wrong with gathering in buildings, but we can do more than that. For instance, like even right now, this is also going to be saved, this message. You, you, it'll be recorded, and maybe you've got a question you want to ask your friends, and you could pause, and you can talk about it. You can send this message if, if you like it. You, you could send it to a friend. You, you could send it, hey, you don't know any, you don't know Peter, but here you can, I want you to listen to this, and your little group can talk about it. There are, I think I've heard there's more of you watching in the Philippines than are even in the United States. Crazy, isn't it? We're gonna, I think we're gonna redefine church. I do think people will realize they long not to be an audience, but to be a body. Now this one, I think we may have the opportunity to pass to the next generation a much better view of economics, a, a gospel-centered economic, which is rooted in reality. And the reality is you can only trust God. You can only trust God. Many of you have experienced retirements wiped out what you thought would look like a retirement. Wiped out. April and I know some of that. But it doesn't change our, our experience. It doesn't change my level of safety. It doesn't change one thing in terms of how God will want to interact in my life. We have unknowingly, I think, for a couple of generations now taught that things always get better and bigger that there are such, there's such a thing as guaranteed returns, that you can buy a house and houses always go up. You can make investments which will always be better for you. Now, I'm absolutely convinced that we need to give up some kind of uh, pleasure today for the possibility of something in the future. That's, I think, again, part of the Bible. But but giving money does that. Saving does that. Being content can do that. But here's the one that I, I, I think I love the most because it is most in rhythm of its, if it's Sunday, but Friday's coming, but Sunday's coming. And that is, I know God will work this for good. I, I, I am I'm building my life on that. I can't explain how bad things happen. But I can explain, or at least I can trust, that when bad things happen, the king comes. Just like it says in that triumphal entry. The king comes to you and the king has the power over time to turn what you thought was the greatest disappointment, the greatest tragedy, into an unbelievable story. That is 
in Romans when it says he works, this verb of God, he works. He gets sweaty making this horrible thing somehow over time a good thing. The Bible says that where sin abounds, grace does more abound. In other words, grace is always a step ahead. We have a joke in our family. My wife is a little competitive, and she's also pretty athletic. And if you ever go on a hike or a walk with her, she is not conscious, but she always will be about a, a foot ahead of you. And so we even try to play with that for we can, and she doesn't even, we begin to try to speed up, and she unconsciously will speed up. You can't pass her. She's always a step ahead. Grace is always a step ahead of a tragedy or a sin or a disappointment in myself. You can't, you can't run past it. You can't run past the goodness and love of God. Here's what I would hope for you is that we would believe the whole gospel. We would acknowledge that yes, we've been disappointed with God because we know what he could do. That's rooted in goodness. That's rooted in truth. But we can't manipulate God. But we can trust that God will always bring Sunday. But he doesn't skip Friday. <laughs> In his life or my life, God's going to give me eternal life. And by his grace, he's going to kill me to get there. If you give up your life, you'll find your life. It's Sunday. Friday's coming. But Sunday's coming back. Let me pray. God, I get excited when I see over and over your excitement for the gospel, for the good news. It does help me. It does help me face my fear to know that you're never afraid. You've never once been worried. And I belong to you. I'm, I'm not arrogant when I say, I'm your kid, and you love me unbelievably, and nothing can happen to me, nothing that's outside of that. So God, I do pray this though, I am, I am worried for my kiddos. <laughs> More than anything, I'm worried for my kiddos and my granddaughter, I'll own that. I have moments when I can trust you with my life, and I pray for the grace to trust you with theirs. That's just my honest prayer today. As we once again enter into the, the drama and recreation of the beauty of this week in our communion, we pray your blessing. Amen. I've asked, uh, I've asked Peter to come and, and do our communion for us. Um, and so I hope you'll participate in whatever way you can.
Thank you, Carl. I love the title of that message. It's Sunday, but Friday's coming because we need that today. I think a lot of people are probably saying Hosanna, right? Have you been saying Hosanna? Save me now, God. Well, Friday is coming, and, and it's interesting that um, in the Jewish calendar, Friday starts on Thursday when the sun goes down. That means that this happened on Friday. And uh, it happened at the start of Friday. And can you imagine a day when anybody in the world ever was more disappointed in God than that day? I mean, these guys had seen Jesus raise Lazarus. They'd seen him do miracles. And I got to tell you, I've seen God heal people in miraculous ways, seen him do things that absolutely blow my mind. And then I get so confused and disappointed when he doesn't do them just when I ask him to do those things. Well, that, that's what these guys must have been feeling. They were sitting at dinner at the start of the week. Jesus um, had the expectations of all of Israel. They were just absolutely enormous. But now he's sitting at this table telling them that they're all going to deny him or they're all going to abandon him that night and one's going to betray him, one's going to deny him. They're, they're watching this whole thing um, uh, unfold and never in the history of the world did it look like more like God was not salvation than on Friday. Absolutely worst thing that ever happened in the history of the world happened Friday. And uh, it was then that Jesus took the bread and broke it, saying, this is my body given to you. Take and eat. Do this in remembrance of me. And he took the cup, saying, this is the covenant in my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it, all of you, and do it in remembrance of me. It's a sacrament. I mean, the church has argued about this for 2,000 years, about exactly how this normal bread and normal cup turns into something extraordinary, which is the very life of God. Sometimes I've wondered if we've talked about that in just the opposite direction. Because isn't all food somehow the life of God? Isn't every breath a gift from God? I mean, maybe in some way Jesus gives us this to help us just remember so that you would touch it, that you would taste it, that you would drink it and realize that everything is the gift of God. And we're not aware it's the gift of God because we're trapped in ourselves. So at home, if you have that cracker or whatever, and by the way, you can do this at other times. Um, I, I know that to you this seems disappointing, <laughs> that this is it. But I would just say I've had some experiences where the curtain has been pulled back and I've realized that the evil one is terrified of this. That somehow God inhabits this in a way that we will turn out that this was like a seed, a seed that would grow into a kingdom more permanent, uh, well, eternal, that makes all this world look like, like illusion. So, so could anybody have ever been more disappointed? And maybe you're disappointed, but I encourage you to do this, to just tear off a piece of the bread <laughs> remembering that God's with you, that you really are his body and we are his body um, together.
And then dip it in the cup or, gosh, you're at home. You can just drink out of the cup, right? And then place that seed in your mouth and swallow. Must be disappointing for a starving farmer to put a seed in the ground and cover it with dirt. But that's what you just did. And it will grow into a kingdom. And you will see that we are all one body. That we are his body. And that Friday actually isn't the worst day. It's the very, very best day. It's the day you come to see what Adam could not see in the garden. And that is that God is love. And God is your helper. In the name of uh, Jesus, believe the gospel. Amen.
couple of paragraphs before I, I read this paragraph. Uh, Paul asked the questions, what, the question, what will separate us from the love of God? And then he answers it. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Believe the whole gospel. It's true. Amen. Amen.